1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Thanks, Yumena. Amazing. We are in 1 Corinthians 3, and if you remember from last week, we looked at a few really important words for Paul. A couple really important words, words like wisdom and maturity And probably the most important word in the chapter, spiritual. And for Paul, those three words are connected. Wisdom, maturity, and spiritual. They're very connected. So just to review, last week. So for for Greeks in Paul's day, just like for Americans in secular culture today, what what are some things that spiritual means? What are some ideas around what it means to be spiritual? Have any ideas? Like in our culture. Disembodied is, yeah, disembodied, immaterial, non-physical, mystical, explosive experiences of some kind. Yeah, like that's how the idea of spiritual, spirituality was in Paul's day, just like it is today in a lot of ways. But for Paul, he takes that word spiritual and he retools it in this book. And for Paul, spiritual means empowered and animated by the Spirit of God rightly oriented to the things of the Spirit. Okay, so it's followers of Jesus. Here's the fact. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. Through trusting Jesus, we can step into right relationship with God, others, ourselves, and the rest of creation. The the scriptures call that shalom. Through walking in the Spirit, we can live lives of thick shalom, peace, rightly ordered relationships with God, other self, and rest of creation. And that's the invitation. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, welcome. You're so brave for coming to a church gathering. It's amazing. If you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you are, the invitation is to live rightly oriented to what Paul calls the things of the Spirit. This is how we live what Jesus calls life to the full. And that's regardless of suffering or circumstance. We can live life to the full in this way. And so the implications are massive, you guys. As a follower of Jesus, since God himself dwells in you, all of your life is meant to be spiritual or lived in step with the Spirit. And then the reality becomes paying your bills is spiritual. Like right now, listening to this sermon is just as spiritual as movie night is spiritual. And doing homework is spiritual. And your morning commute north on the 5 or 8 east, spiritual. These are spiritual things for those who are animated by the Spirit, living in step with the Spirit. Because the fact is, as a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in you. And then when you live in step with his heartbeat, what Paul is saying is he calls that spiritual. Okay, This is the life God intends for you. True flourishing despite suffering. So it's your life rightly oriented to the things of the Spirit. 
or as we call it, practicing the way of Jesus together as a community. And this is, this is what Paul's telling the Corinthians all through this letter. He's talking about a lot of different aspects of life. And he's saying, no, let's rethink that in light of Jesus and the way of the cross. Let's rethink that in light of the Holy Spirit of God. And he makes this point very like, provocatively in our text that Humana just read. Let's read it, verse 1 on the screen again. Uh, he says, brothers and sisters... I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Yikes. Okay, so Paul's, Paul's digging in here very intentionally. And so to get, a feel, to get a feel for what Paul's doing here, just imagine the early church in Corinth, like 50 or 60 people in a room, and all through chapter two, they're reading this letter, and chapter two, Paul's like, you have the mind of Christ, you have access to the Spirit of God, you have a connection to the triune creator, and, and in that connection, you can live as a spiritual person. And, and you have God's wisdom, and the mystery of the gospel is revealed to you. And he's saying all these amazing things. It's great to know. And it's like, the open secret is yours to know. God has come to you. And, and so it's kind of like this. It's like, hey, Park Hill, hey, uh, do you guys want to know a secret? Like, do you, would you like to know a secret? Yeah, like, a secret nobody else knows. Would that be cool? Of course that would be cool. Like, we love that feeling, Right? Like we love, we've always loved the feeling of being the privileged, enlightened insider. And it's that intoxicating, you just want to inject it in your veins. It rushes over you. It's like, I know something they don't. Right? And, and Paul, he does that. He spins the table on them in that way. Back in chapter 2, he's like, you know, you guys, there are some people in the world who just aren't very mature. And he's like, some people are worldly. They're not spiritual. They're not deep. There's some very immature, shallow people out there, you guys. And the Corinthians who are already struggling with arrogance, they're probably like, yeah, Paul, you like tell those immature people to grow up. You tell them. And Paul's like, okay, here I go. I'm about to tell them. He's like, go get them. And he's like, okay, you ready? And he looks them in the eye. He's like, it's you. You're the immature ones. And then, and then he pushes further, and he's like, yes, yes, yes. I know that when I came to you, I, my teaching was simple. It was, it was not like super eloquent and deep. I know I came to you with simple teaching, but you guys, in my defense, the reason I had to break my teaching down into baby's milk was because I was dealing with you. That's what he's saying. And in verse two, he says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. And Paul's image is intentionally disturbing here. It's like a fully grown child, almost preteen, still breastfeeding is the idea he's communicating. It's intentionally just raw and disturbing. And Paul's like, it's been 25 years, you guys, and you're still on milk is the idea. You still haven't made any measurable progress in leaving your old way of living and becoming like Jesus. At this point, I wish you could take the heavy stuff but in Paul's words, he's like, you are still not ready. You, you are still worldly, he says. And so we get that, that tricky word, worldly. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. What does Paul mean there, uh, worldly? 
Well, two things to keep in mind. Number one, really important, Paul is talking to Jesus followers, not people outside the church, okay? Of course, people who don't trust Jesus or follow Jesus wouldn't be expected to act like Jesus, of course. That's a given. For Paul, there's zero point in labeling outsiders outsiders. He just wants to invite everybody in. He's like, Jesus, his way is open to you. Come and receive refreshment through repentance. The big issue, the big issue for Paul is that there are longtime Jesus followers who are still acting like they don't follow Jesus. This is his big problem. And so he calls these Christians worldly or literally flesh-oriented as opposed to spirit-oriented, which leads to number two. For Paul, the word worldly is an orientation word. Just like the word spiritual means oriented. You have that next slide. Just like the word spiritual means oriented toward the things of the spirit, the word worldly or fleshly, same word in the Greek, means oriented toward the things of the flesh. And these are really the north and south poles in Paul's writings of, of Christian spirituality. The, these two words function as the two opposite poles of spirituality for Paul. It's a huge theme in Paul's letters. Huge theme. In fact, uh, the most famous place is probably Galatians 5. It's this letter he wrote to this other church. Uh, if you're in a community here, you read this last, last week. Powerful text. We're actually going to walk through it right now because it's that important for what we're doing today. It'll be up on the screen. Here it is. You ready for this? He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. It's like, this is what true freedom looks like. I'm about to tell you. He says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, there's that term, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And here's the principle the North and South Pole principle. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that why? So that you are not to do whatever you want. Right there, you guys, is a scathing critique of modern secular values, which is like, you do you, be authentic, and no one can tell you no just diametrically opposed to secular values. Paul, Paul goes right for the jugular there, and he's like, no, the flesh and spirit are in conflict with one another, which means uh, you are not to be dictated by your desires. My goodness, that is a hard word to hear today. And then in verse 18, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Meaning that's true freedom. Facing the north is where true freedom actually is. Not in getting to choose between north and south at any given moment. And so this is what Paul calls walking in the spirit. The north, this spiritual is walking in the spirit. And, he, and then he calls acting in the flesh worldly. And for Paul, these are antithetical. It's either or. 
And I know this doesn't sit well with us as modern, like, enlightened, tolerant Westerners. The Bible has a lot of both and in it, but this is not one of them. Paul's very either or on this. Um, So in any given moment, for Paul, you are either oriented toward the things of the Spirit or you're oriented toward the things of the flesh, which means for followers of Jesus, there is no such thing as spiritual neutral. Why? Because as children of God, God lives in you. Therefore, all of life is meant to be spiritual. All of life is meant to flourish in right orientation to God, in relation to God, other self, and rest of creation. It's all about face, which direction your whole person is facing. In any given moment, which pole is my life pointed toward? So the main question is not how close am I to the final destination? The main question is not how arrived do I seem or how put together do I think I am? That's not it at all. The, the, the question, wherever you are on the map, the most important question is, am I facing north today? Like no matter what happened yesterday, today am I facing north The good news of the gospel is it doesn't matter if you spent your whole life up to this point totally opposed to God or if you think of yourself as like a solid church-going super-christ, like church-Christian person. It doesn't matter how you see yourself or if you're lost somewhere on the equator or if you're lost somewhere in the Bermuda Triangle not really knowing where your doubts meet your beliefs. None of that matters as much as which pole your whole life is currently facing the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit. Remember from a few weeks back, conversion, the idea of coming to Jesus, being converted, it's not the arrival at a destination, it's the acquisition of a compass. As as Christians, we have a compass. He's called the Holy Spirit. Are you walking in the spirit? I love how Dallas Willard says it. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. So when you and I, when we look at our whole life, is there any part, body, mind, soul, social life, relational life, is there any part that is not oriented toward the things of the spirit? And if if not... Am I willing to respond in obedience and to use the Bible's language, repent, which simply means return home, rethink, rethink your uh, whole station in life, <laughs> rethink your thinking in light of the reality that the triune God is behind all of reality. And that, my friends, is the most important question for us today and tomorrow morning as you get up for work and how we relate to our parents and partners, roommates and coworkers, is my whole life oriented toward the things of the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, or am I giving space to the flesh, as Paul calls it? So what does that look like, the flesh, giving space to the flesh? Paul saw that question coming a mile away, and he answers it in the next verse. Galatians 5.19, he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Oh, really, Paul, do tell. Um, He says, sexual immorality which is Greek word pornea, which simply means, in Paul's day, sex with someone you are not married to. 
Um, I know we don't have a category for sexual morality as much anymore as a culture, but that's what it meant biblically. And then sexual morality, impurity, debauchery. Debauchery is a weird word. It just means acting out inappropriately. Um, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions. Fact. He lists all these things. And um, if you notice that list, if you've been around here for the last month, that's basically the list of things he's going to call out the church in Corinth on. Basically, every single one was what the church was doing, which, which is why we're in that letter, because it's very timely for us today. So we're, we're going to hit 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul starts to work through like how to think about the goodness of sex and marriage and gender and food and drink and leadership and spiritual gifts and how to reorient our lives around God's thoughts. And so here in Galatians, he, he, he just told us all the negatives. Paul, what... what are the positives. What does it look like to face the north? And, and he says it, but the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, which is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he's like, against such things there is no law. In other words, this is actual freedom. <laughs> Facing north is actual freedom. Uh, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's excruciating language there. And then he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Not prideful, not provoking or poking at each other. And so this is our daily call as Jesus followers. Since we have the Holy Spirit, live like it. This is the argument for, for Paul all the way through this letter. Don't let your life be dictated by culture's thinking, but by God's thinking about what it means to be human. Okay? Which brings us back to Corinth, uh, where this thinking was a major problem just like it is for the church in the West today. Paul says it this way, just to wrap up the text. He says, you are still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, that word jealousy is the Greek word zeal, like zealos, which is where we get the idea of like passion, but it's, it's misplaced passion. Misplaced passion and quarreling. It, when you do that, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow this guy, are you not mere human beings? And the answer is, yes. When Jesus' followers are driven by jealousy, misplaced zeal, and tribalism, yes, we're acting like mere human. We're acting like everyone. There's no difference. And we're cutting our lifeline to the Spirit of God. So, we just finished the text Good job. We're done with the working through the text. But at this point, it's like, so what for our community? What does this look like in 2020, San Diego? Um, because jealousy and misplaced zeal and like breaking up into tribes, that's always been a part of the human problem, right? That's like not new. Like contrary to popular opinion, America doesn't have the corner on division and fighting about stuff. Um, this stuff has been around forever. However... I, I want to say, I think it's important to say, as Jesus followers in America in 2020, 
This call to unity and spiritual maturity is especially timely for a couple reasons. For a couple reasons. Number one, church. On the church side, how many of you have heard the stat that there are roughly 40,000 different denominations in the world? Some, how many of you heard, 30, like 33,000 plus? Have you heard that stat? It circulates quite a lot. Like I've even repeated that stat. Um, uh, a lot of people, I guess, round it up to 40,000. It's 33,000 in the World Christian Encyclopedia, but 40 is a nice round number, I guess, and it preaches well. Um, but, but listen, when you, when you break that number down and you actually do like five minutes of digging, the vast majority of those 40,000 different denominations, they are not divided from one another the way Paul's talking about, the way Paul's bummed about. Thousands of them are simply separated by country or culture or language or even just style. They just had a certain style going and they're not angry at anybody, you know? Um, in reality, Park Hill, this church, we are no more like divided from Reformed Baptists or Anglicans or the Assembly of God denominations than we are divided from like The Rock or Calvary Chapel or even Neighbors Church across town. Like we're not, that's not division. Um, the vast majority of churches and denominations are not divided from one another in the New Testament sense. So the division Paul's talking about isn't, you know, preferences or cultures or even like doctrinal disagreements that are secondary. Instead, this division that Paul's angry about, that he's bummed about, it's all about infighting and labeling and slander and gossip. Paul makes this very explicit in chapter one and chapter three, rivalry, jealousy, not differences of opinion on minor doctrines, okay? So first of all, let's stop spreading. If you ever hear that, that stat, 40,000 different denominations, stop spreading that stat as if it's a sign of rampant, horrific global church division because it's not. Unity is not when churches have the same name on their sign. Unity is when churches overcome rivalry by choosing to pray together and serve one another and celebrate one another's differences while confessing the same gospel, okay? And the vast majority of Christian churches are united in that common faith. This is why as Park Hill leaders, we are cheering on the other churches in our city, often by name in our prayer gatherings. This is a massive value for us. But just to get a little more personal, Right now, I know that there are people here at Park Hill from all kinds of church traditions. Like you've come from all kinds of backgrounds. And actually it's something I love most about our church. Love it. A little tricky at times, but I love it. It's awesome. I know that a lot of us are here because we might have rejected certain things about our religious upbringing whether it's Baptist or Methodist, Catholic, Episcopal, Pentecostal, whatever it is. And listen, that's okay. It's important to be able to tell the truth about those experiences. And it's, and it's also important to lovingly point out heresy, like theologically liberal churches that deny the deity of Jesus, for example. It's okay and healthy to point out those differences in a loving way. But... It is so, so important never to slander other churches or denominations in our attempt to justify why we left them. Like, do you hear me on that? Like, 
like baseline, crucial. I get that we have wounds, I have wounds, so do you, but it's so critically important that we never slander other churches or denominations. Uh, if you catch something like, officially, if you catch someone doing that around here, like permission to lovingly call them out, like in community right here. <laughs> um, for us as leaders, Park Hill leaders, prior, top priority for us is to be a source of unity in the church in San Diego. You guys, that's why we're doing seven. That's why we're calling all of Park Hill to show up with other churches to pray for God to move in our time. We feel deeply called to partner in that way with as many churches as we can to pray and fast and seek God together for our city. We refuse to be a source of rivalry and gossip and, and infighting, okay? Because according to Paul and Jesus, that infighting, that immature disunity is actually the thing that makes the gospel unbelievable to the watching world. More than anything else. Jesus, that's why Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, make them one so that the world will see that you love me and that you sent me for them. It was our unity that is a catalyst for a watching world to see the beauty of God. So that brings us, so that's the church side, which brings us to the second reason this whole idea of unity and maturity, um, why it's so important. Second reason, everybody's favorite, least favorite topic, politics. <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't love talking about politics. I'm not that guy. Uh, it's just such low-hanging fruit right now for pastors that, um, especially when you're preaching a message on unity. So it's, it's 2020, which means it's election year, okay? Um, and, and we are Jesus followers in America, citizens of heaven, which means it's a year to keep reminding ourselves of the New Testament command to live in the Spirit and not divide up into hostile groups against one another, okay? So it's, it's interesting to me, and I know this is anecdotal, but um, what I've seen, it's interesting when I talk to older Americans, people my grandpa's age who have seen, who are young enough, uh, old enough to see World War II in their young uh, age, you know, especially, yeah, people that live through serious, serious times like that, they, they tend to say a similar type of thing. They're like, when we were growing up, we didn't think of ourselves as diehard Republicans or diehard Democrats. We just voted for whatever candidate made the most sense at the time, which was always changing. And most of all, it just never occurred to us to think of one party as all good and the other party as all bad. It just never occurred to us. And, and deep down, like, we know there's something deeply right about that thinking. But today, for whatever reason, we are becoming increasingly religious about our politics, which means our self-righteous spiritual immaturity is just now taking on a political tune, okay? So numerous studies have shown, on the whole, American political convictions now shape religious beliefs more than religious beliefs, beliefs shape political convictions. Um, in other words, if you're a Jesus follower filled with the Spirit, Jesus should be shaping not just political convictions, but all of life in the world, including political, it should come from Jesus. Um, but it's now the case that our political convictions are shaping what we believe about Jesus, about the scriptures, about the church, and about faithful Christian witness in the world. So just to vividly demonstrate this, from the beginning of human history, 
race, ethnicity, and I know race is a modern construct, largely the way we use it, but ethnic difference. For the, from the beginning of human history, race has been the most powerful source of disunity in human culture, hands down, hands down. Ancient Greeks talked about the barbarians like they're only fit to be slaves and Greeks can be slaves if they so choose or whatever. Like, so it's, it goes all the way back. But there are signs that politics now, there are now signs that politics has surpassed race as the most powerful source of disunity in modern America. For example, 90% of Americans are now okay with interracial marriage. And yes, that number should be 100%. Totally. And I realize this is just one facet of the race conversation. But listen, 90% is amazingly high considering 60 years ago, nobody was okay with interracial marriage in the 50s. Less than 4% voted, like in a survey across America, less than 4% approved of interracial marriage in the 1950s. And now, 60 years later, 90% are cool with it, which is awesome. It's great. Uh, but before we, like, throw a party and celebrate too much, we should know that our immaturity hasn't gone away. It's simply shifting <laughs> from, from race over to other things, and especially, it seems, politics. Get this. 55% of Americans now say they would have a problem with their child entering into an interpolitical marriage. That's more than doubled since the 50s. Very interesting study by uh, Lynn Vavrick at UCLA. Very interesting. So it used to be, no daughter of mine's going to marry a white man or a black man or whatever. Now it's, no daughter of mine's going to marry a Republican, you know? <laughs> that actually. <laughs> so we, we, we have an election coming up, so, so I'm told. Um, and it's shaping up to be the most divisive election possibly in modern history which means we have a remarkable opportunity, church, in front of us. Probably a once-in-a-generation opportunity to show an angry, bickering culture the peaceful, unifying way of Jesus, who happens to be the only world leader who actually has the power to heal the brokenness we want to see fixed. Um, so practically, practically speaking, what does this unity look like? You know, red and blue or whatever. I just, I just want to say this simple thing. I'm convinced that when Jesus followers, Christians, think we owe the body of Christ this grace. When Jesus followers go out to vote for either Trump on the right or Bernie or Biden on the left or whatever, for the most part, Jesus followers, will, we will all be voting according to our conscience informed by the scriptures. Okay, so instead of being unkind, unloving, and jumping to unfair conclusions about a brother or sister we disagree with, you know, it's that feeling of, oh, you voted for who? You must not care about X. That's the judgment call that is not ours to make. Oh, you did, you vote, you must, they must not care about, and you immediately relegate them to subpar Christian or whatever. Um, that is not our judgment call. That's the divisiveness that Paul is explicitly talking about in 1 Corinthians 1 and 3. Way more than whether you agree or disagree on infant baptism or whatever. Um, so we have a golden opportunity to honor 
the consciences of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ through conversation and listening and move toward the work of the kingdom together in unity, move, move on together. So question, are we going to take that opportunity? Whether it's on social media or at the Thanksgiving table this fall, are we going to take that opportunity to move toward maturity and unity in the church? Let's show up for seven. Let's pray together as a church. Or maturity and unity across political craziness. Maturity as a spiritual son of God, daughter of God, oriented toward the things of the Spirit, with every area of life rightly directed toward his heart and away from the acts of the flesh. So, my friends, followers of Jesus, you have the mind of Messiah. You have the Spirit. So, let's walk. Let's walk in step with the Spirit. Let's commit to growing in the Spirit together, okay? Okay, so we're, we're about, to, we're gonna come to the table in a few minutes, um, but I, I just think it's too easy to stop in sermons with like big concepts where we all nod our heads, yes, let's grow, yes, let's kumbaya or whatever. Um, it would be really easy to end there. I think the sermon would be done with a, just a general call to spiritual growth, but if we stop there, we risk just nodding our heads at nice sounding things often. We need a vision for this, you guys. A vision for a, a whole life that is formed by the Spirit and animated and empowered. Sunday through, through Saturday to move in step with the community of God. We need a vision for this in all of life. So here's just a vision for this that's impressed me this last week. And this is what we'll close with. Last Sunday, last Sunday at 2 p.m., uh, Sandy's grandpa, um, Poppy, age 92, he was, it was 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon. His great grandkids were on his, on his bed as he's kind of, he can't really walk anymore at all. And he's, um, and he's just, starts to glaze, glaze over, and slip, he slips into a coma at 2 p.m. on Sunday. We've been visiting Poppy for the past few months because he has bone cancer and we've been preparing for the end. And so, so on Monday, we get a call. He's, he's in a coma. It's, it's the last time. And so we drive out to Yukaipa one more time to gather around his bed and pray with the family. It was an incredible time, tears and songs and, and stories and laughter. Um, and, then on, and then we drive home Monday night. And then on Tuesday... A friend recommends this book to me, just unrelated to this teaching or anything. He's like, Evan, have you ever read Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser? Um, I'm like, no. He's like, prepare to be radically ministered to. I'm like, whoa, okay. And so, and so I'm reading through the first half of this book, first like 60 pages, and Rollheiser is painting this incredible vision for how Christian maturity happens over a whole human life. And he breaks it up in three phases. Phase, so, so helpful for me. Phase one, he calls essential discipleship. Where it's basically, he, he defines it as the struggle to get our lives together. <laughs> and the image he gives is, a, is an archer with a bow and arrow. 
and, and, and this, in, this phase, in this phase, you're like, I'm a bow in your hands, Lord. Draw me lest I rot. Like, just send me out. I just want to go. I'm unsettled here. I want to go out of home. And, he's, and he says, this phase starts basically at puberty, and it kind of starts to fade out once you settle, start settling down, whatever settling down looks like. And it's a time, it's this phase of longing and not being comfortable in your sexuality and in your skin and in your new realizations about the world around you. And all of us step into this phase and step into and out of it in various ways. And, we, and we're like, where is home? This isn't my home anymore. Where am I going to belong? And it's, and it's this big question, how do I get my life together? And in a word, this is our search for home. And it's this first phase of life. The struggle is from being restlessly driven out of our first home to finding the state of true home in the Spirit, in God. And so the challenge is, is to root yourself in the community during this phase. A lot of you here are in this phase. Starting college or finishing high school or finishing college or whatever. And, uh, and you're like, where, where, is, where will home be? That's a big question that's behind the questions you have. And, and the ultimate challenge is to root yourself in the community of the Spirit and together live in step with the Spirit and find your home in God. And I imagine a lot of you are working through this, and, and many of us are stepping into phase two, which he calls mature discipleship, where it's no longer getting our lives together, but now it's a struggle to give our lives away. And the archer, back to the archer metaphor, it's, Lord, uh, do not overdraw me, I shall break. And I'm, I feel like I'm right in the thick of this one. <laughs> I mean, the, the first phase never goes away, the youthful angst and all of that, identity crisis, never goes away. But this is when we start shifting from how do I get my life together to how do I give my life away more deeply, generously, and meaningfully? And at some point for us, that begins to shift. We become concerned more with the lives around us than with our own life. And this is what happens. This is the fruit of authentic, committed community, married or single. No matter what age you are, this, this, is, this is where this rootedness begins to mature you in a profound way. Mature discipleship, slide 21, there it is. Mature discipleship begins when we start living more for others than for ourselves. And you guys, for most of us, gosh, this, this phase is the longest. Could last 40, 50, 60 years. 60 years of practicing home. Practicing commitment to community, life in the spirit for the sake of others. And practicing for what? What are we practicing for? for the third and final phase. We still have to die. All of us. Some die more unexpectedly than others, which means less time to live in the third phase, but we're all headed there, where it's no longer the struggle to give our lives away, but phase three is uh, what he calls radical discipleship, the struggle to give our deaths away. And the picture here is the archer, okay, Lord, overdraw me. And who cares if I break? And at a certain point in our life with God, we step into deeper spiritual maturity when we're less asking, what can I do so my life contributes? And, and now, now we're shifting. 
to how can I now live so that my death will be the greatest possible blessing for my family, my church, and the world. Just like Jesus gave his life away for others through generosity, Jesus also gave his death away, which means we are to give our deaths away, not just the moment we die, but in a whole process of leaving this planet in such a way that our slowing down to die is possibly our final and greatest gift that we give to those we love most. And so I'm reading all this on Tuesday. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this, this is a vision I didn't know I needed. It's profoundly rooting me. And, and then on Wednesday morning at 11.22 a.m., we get a call. Uh, Poppy passed into God's presence, surrounded by his daughters, and he left behind dozens of grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who, whether they knew it or not, Poppy was constantly giving his death away. I mean, even in his final days when all he could physically do was say a, a quiet blessing on you from his bed while maybe spotting you a 20 or something. <laughs> he was constantly giving his death away. And so I'm, I'm finding myself asking the question of God, of myself, like how, how do I know that spiritual maturity is happening in me? How do I know when I can't see it? How do I trust that what Paul says is true, that he who has begun the good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ? How do I know that when it doesn't seem that way? And all, all I know, you guys, is I want to be so animated by the Spirit of God that my life and my death become gifts to my family and my church community, which is why I have zero interest. If I'm facing north, if I'm, right, if I'm in my right place with the Spirit, I have zero interest in entertaining the acts of the flesh that would keep me from being fully animated by the Spirit and a full gift to the people I love the most. This is the kind of person God is inviting us to become. Rightly oriented toward the things of the Spirit, experiencing life to the full so that others can get the splash over all the way to the end. And so, whatever phase you're in, what matters is, are you facing north? Like, who, who knows if, if you're young here and yet entering your third phase because soon it's going to be over? Who knows? It could be, or it could also be that uh, you're shifting between one and two and you don't know it, you can't feel it. All that matters, which way are you oriented towards? Whatever phase you're in, and we, we want to honor also, gosh, we want our communities to be places where all three phases are pouring into one another. If you are in your goal, we are praying for more seasoned maturity, gray hair, years of experience, life upon, spiritual fathers and mothers. We need more spiritual fathers and mothers in this church, desperately, to begin to speak life from this side of phase two <laughs> to those of us that are looking for home. Communities are the place where that happens. Communities are to be the place where that happens. So whatever phase you're in today, the invitation is to step into committed community, invite the Spirit to empower you there. So the big takeaway as the worship 
guys are coming up, the musicians. Um, the, the big action, here's the big action step for us. Ask, ask for the spirit of God's help. This is a day of asking, a day of coming to a father who's so good that he will not withhold the things that he promises us. Jesus put it this way. He said, if you then, are, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the invitation to step into a posture. Lord, I am your son, your daughter. I've been walking with you for 60 years or six years or six months, and I need your power. I need your presence in my life. Come, Holy Spirit. Bring me in line with your desires for myself and those I love and those around me that you have for me. So if we could all stand together, we're gonna step into this time of communion and then prayer. Mm -hmm.